0: Chapter 9 of The Sign of the Cross in the Nineteenth Century. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Michael Portelli. The Sign of the Cross in the Nineteenth Century by Jean Gourmet. Letter 9 THE SIGN OF THE CROSS AMONG PAGANS NEW DETAILS OF AN EXTERIOR FORM OF THE SIGN OF THE CROSS AMONG THE FIRST CHRISTIANS THE MARTYRS IN THE AMPHITHEATRE ETYMOLOGY OF THE WORD ADORE THE PAGANS ADORED BY MAKING THE SIGN OF THE CROSS HOW THEY MADE IT FIRST manner, DECEMBER fourth. THE SIGN OF THE CROSS AMONG THE PAGANS. Such, my friend, is the subject of this letter. In order to follow to the end the traditional chain which unites the synagogue to the church, I am going to say a word to you about the sign of the cross among the primitive Christians. You are already aware that they made it at every instant, but are perhaps ignorant that in order not to interrupt it while they were praying, they transform themselves into signs of the cross, in any case, I would wager a hundred against one that your companions know nothing of it. What Moses, Samson, David, and the Israelites did only at intervals, our forefathers did always. You will understand the reason of this: Amalek the Philistines Heliodorus were passing enemies, while the Roman giant never laid down his arms. Between our fathers and him the struggle was continual. It was carried to the extreme. It was without respite or intermission. Under those circumstances each became as another Moses on the mount. Not for one day, but during three centuries did their hands remain extended towards heaven asking, like those of the Hebrew law-giver, victory for the martyrs in the arena and the conversion of their persecutors. Let us hear an eyewitness speak of their thoughts and attitude in prayer. We pray, says Tertullian, with our eyes raised toward heaven and our hands outstretched, because they are innocent, our heads bare, because we have nothing to blush for without a monitor, because we pray from the heart. In this attitude, we unceasingly implore that all the emperors may have a long life, a peaceful reign, a palace free from snares, a valorous army, a virtuous people, a tranquil world. In a word, for all the wishes of the man and the Caesar. They prayed in the east and the west, Men, women, children, young men, young virgins, old men, senators, matrons, the faithful of all conditions. This mysterious attitude they kept not only in their meetings in the depths of catacombs, in pleading the interests of others, but they also took it with them, when dragged into the amphitheatre, they had to fight for themselves, under the eyes of innumerable spectators. The great combat of martyrdom. Can you, my dear friend, imagine a more affecting spectacle than that of which Eusebius gives us a description? The persecution of Diocletian was raging with great violence in Phoenicia. One day a great number of Christians, condemned to the wild beasts, were to be seen entering the amphitheatre. The spectators shuddered with deep emotion at the sight of that multitude of children, youths, and old men, stripped of their garments, their eyes raised to heaven, their arms extended in the form of a cross, standing immovable, without fear or surprise, in the midst of ravenous lions and tigers. The fear which ought to have agitated the condemned had passed into the souls of the spectators, and even of the judges. That attitude was not exceptional, Let us listen again to the same historian. None is more worthy of credit, for he was an eye witness of what he relates. You should have seen in the midst of the amphitheatre, says he, a young man, not yet twenty years of age, freed from his bonds, standing tranquilly, his arms extended in the form of a cross, his eyes and heart fixed on heaven, praying with fervour, motionless in the midst of bears and leopards, whose fury threatened instant death. Then those furious beasts, ready to tear his flesh, suddenly muzzled, as it were, by a mysterious power, hastily fled away. On account of the delicacy of the victim, the West offers us a still more affecting sight. It was in the midst of the great city of Rome, NEVER HAD SUCH MULTITUDES CROWDED THE STEPS OF THE CIRCUS. THE HEROINE WAS AGNES, A NOBLE VIRGIN, ONLY THIRTEEN YEARS OLD. CONDEMNED TO THE FIRE, SHE ASCENDS THE FUNERAL PILE. DO YOU SEE HER, SAYS SAINT AMBROSE, STRETCHING HER HANDS TOWARDS CHRIST, AND EVEN IN THE MIDST OF THE FLAMES, ERECTING THE VICTORIOUS STANDARD OF THE LORD? WITH HANDS OUTSTRETCHED THROUGH THE FLAMES, She offers to God the following prayer. O Thou, whom we must adore, honour and fear, Almighty Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, I bless Thee, because thanks to Thine only Son I have escaped from the hands of impious men and have passed unsullied through the impurities of the demon. And behold, moreover, that by the dew of the Holy Ghost is extinguished the fire which surrounds me, The flames are divided, and the burning heat of my pile threatens those who have enkindled it. Such was the eloquent form of the sign of the cross in use among the Christians of the primitive church, those Moseses of the new covenant. You may see another proof of this on the paintings in the catacombs. This form has lasted a long time. I saw it practiced about thirty years ago by some of the German people, But even if this form be in disuse among the faithful, the Church religiously preserves it. The two hundred thousand priests who every day ascend the altar in every part of the globe are the visible links of that traditional chain which extends from us to the catacombs, from the catacombs to Calvary, from Calvary to Raphidum, and then is lost in the night of time. Let us speak of the pagans. They also made the sign of the cross. They made it in prayer, and with good reason believed it to be endued with mysterious strength of great importance. Ask your companions for the etymology of the word adore, adorare. They will not be at a loss for the answer. If this word were a creation of the church, you might dispense yourself from asking the question. But it is found in the Latin of the golden age as they say in colleges, and they, bachelors, just fresh from college, ought to know it. Analyzing it, then we find that the verb to adore signifies, according to all etymologists, to bring the hand to the mouth and kiss it. Manum ad os ad movere. Such was the way in which the pagans honoured their gods. Proofs of this abound. When we adore, says Pliny, we bring our right hand to our mouth and kiss it. Then we describe a circle with our body. We turn ourselves around. Here, Minucius Felix, Cecilius saw the statue of Serapis, and according to the custom of the superstitious people, put his hand to his mouth and kissed it. Apuleius, until now, Emelianus has prayed to no god. He has frequented no temple. If he passes before a sacred place, he regards it as a crime to bring his hand to his lips to adore. Why did this gesture express the sovereign worship, the worship of adoration? I will tell you in two words. Man is the image of God. God is entire in his word. By him he does all things. Like God, man is entire in his word. It is by it that he does everything. To carry the hand to the mouth is to repress the word. It is in some sort to be annihilated. To do it as the pagans did, to honour the demon, was to declare themselves his vassals, his subjects, his slaves, and even to acknowledge him as God. You see that it was an enormous crime, hence the remarkable words of Job, pleading his cause, If I beheld the sun when it shined, and the moon advancing in brightness, and my heart in secret hath rejoiced, and I have kissed my hand with my mouth, which is a very great iniquity, and a denial against the Most High God. This mysterious gesture was so particular a sign of idolatry that in speaking of the Israelites, who had remained faithful, God said, And I will leave me seven thousand men in Israel, whose knees have not been bowed before Baal, and every mouth that hath not worshipped him, kissing the hands. The pagans adored by carrying the hand to the mouth and kissing it. The fact is incontestable. But you will tell me that in all this you do not see the sign of the cross. You shall see it presently in the manner of kissing the hand. Look at that pagan, his knee bent to the ground, or his head bowed before his idols. Do you see him passing the thumb of his right hand under the index and resting it on the middle finger so as to form a cross? Then, devoutly kissing that cross, murmuring a few words in honour of his gods, repeat this gesture yourself and you will see that the sign of the cross could not be better formed. That such was the manner of the adoring kiss, among many other pagans, we learn from Apulcius. A multitude of citizens and strangers, says he, were attracted by the noise of the ravishing spectacle. Amazed at the admirable beauty of which they were the witnesses, they carried their right hand to their mouth, the index resting on the thumb, and by religious prayers honoured it even as the divinity. This manner of making the sign of the cross is so true and so expressive that it remains even in our day familiar to a great number of Christians in every country. It was not the only one known to the pagans. Such of them as were the most pious made the sign of the cross by joining their hands over the breast. We find this sign of the cross in one of the most solemn and mysterious circumstances of their public life. I will leave your curiosity unsatisfied until tomorrow. End of the Ninth Letter Recording by Michael Portelli